As we begin this morning, I want you to picture in your mind's eye the ones that you love the most on this earth. Probably the first person that pops in your head. Okay, you got them? For me, what's well, my wife and kids? I love my family more than anything on earth, right? When they're doing well, I'm doing well. When they're happy, I'm happy. Their joy is my joy. I don't know about you. There's nothing that makes me more happy on earth than to hear the laughter of my wife and my kids. Likewise, when they're sad and they're hurting, I am sad and hurting. Our lives are, are bound up together in a deep affection for one another. You know, there are things that, that my children do that I find so endearing that you probably find deeply annoying right? I'm well, well aware of that. Um, I couldn't help but smile last week as my middle son walked with an ear-to-ear grin over to the gospel project with no shoes on, you know, completely barefoot. I'm like, bro, what do you think this is, Kentucky? I mean, that's where we came from. This is Arizona. I love my family. I would give my life for them in a heartbeat. But guess what? Jesus says, I should love him more than I love my family. What about you? Perhaps what popped in your head or who popped in your head were your parents or a sibling or a, a close friend. Regardless of who the object of your greatest affection is, Jesus says that he has a higher claim on your heart's love than they do. It sounds scandalous or absurd to say that, doesn't it? That a man who lived 2,000 years ago should have a higher priority in our hearts than our closest loved ones still with us right now. But that's the claim that Jesus makes repeatedly throughout his ministry. How could he say this? We're going to find out in our passage today. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 10. Matthew chapter 10, it's on page 815 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you need a Bible, please grab that one. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home and make it your Bible. We'd love to give it to you as a gift from the church. Our text today is Matthew 10, 34 to 42. But before we dive in, I want us to zoom out to a bird's eye view of Matthew and remind ourselves of where we are in Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. So today, like I said, we're looking at the end of Matthew 10, which is the conclusion of the second of five big blocks of teaching in Matthew's gospel. So if you're looking down from the vantage of the bird, right, you're looking at the major landscape markers of Matthew, you're going to see five big sections of Jesus's teaching. The first big block was the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters five to seven. And the second big block is in chapter 10. That has to do with his disciples' witness and their mission on which Jesus sends them. We've been in Matthew 10 for the last couple of weeks. And then interspersed between the blocks of Jesus' teaching is the account of his mighty works and really the rest of the details that Matthew wanted to include about the Lord Jesus. Well, beginning at the, chapter, uh, at the beginning of chapter 10, Jesus sent his disciples on a short-term mission throughout Galilee. They were to spread abroad the good news of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is clear, isn't he? Not everyone will give his disciples a warm welcome. Not everyone will receive the message. In fact, some would reject them outright and even want to harm them. 
two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' instructions in verses 16 to 33, in which he tells his disciples that really violent hostility awaits you in this world. And not only for, for them, but he, Jesus widened the lens, didn't he, of his teaching to include what we as his followers should expect in the world as we seek to live faithfully as Christians. This is what we will endure as we seek to make Christ known. Things like government oppression and family hostility and verbal malignment. And perhaps you think, well, at least you hope that at this point, you know, at the end of his uh, instruction here, Jesus will just take his foot off the gas a little bit, lighten up. Surely now he'll pivot to easier topics to think about. As much as I kind of wish that were the case to make my job as the, the preacher a bit easier, that is not what he does. In fact, he doubles down on his demands and he zeroes in on something very specific, what our hearts love. So let's read together, starting in verse 34 of Matthew 10. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is, disciple, he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, I think the main idea of these verses, verses 34 to 42, is this, following Jesus as a Christian hinges on who you love. And what I mean by that is whether you follow Jesus or whether you don't follow Jesus, that decision hinges on who you love. Now, for your grammar police, I know it's supposed to be whom you love, okay? But nobody talks like that, so we're going we're gonna to leave it as who you love, and really, Jesus deals with two objects of love. Number one, we are to love Jesus supremely. We see that in verses 34 to 39. Number two, we're to love Jesus' people too. We see that in verses 40 to 42. Let's look at the beginning of our text, verses 34 to 39. We're to love Jesus supremely. You know, the headliner verse for this first section is right there in verse 34. And it is shocking. Intentionally so. Jesus is shocking our discipleship senses here. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, the first thing you notice is Jesus' twofold use of the word come. Do not think that I have come. I have not come. Well, Jesus here is referring to his mission on earth, what he came to do. And what is it exactly that Jesus came to do? Well, surely he came to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, right? Isn't that what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds in the Bethlehem skies upon Jesus' birth? But no, Jesus 
seems to say the exact opposite. Do not think that I have come to bring peace. That's not why I'm here. I've come to bring a sword. Friends, for some reason, I don't think that's great Facebook meme material. Is that really what Jesus said? Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah King would be called the Prince of Peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. He had just exhorted His disciples in chapter 10, verse 13, to proclaim a blessing of peace upon households and towns who receive them. So what gives? Is Jesus just a walking contradiction? Were Isaiah and the angels wrong about Him? Well, no, not at all. In fact, what Jesus is doing, at least in part, is reframing his disciples' messianic expectations. He's reorienting what they expected of the promised king. You see, the Jews in Jesus' day thought that the Messiah would bring them political peace and material prosperity. And Jesus is definitive over and over again. That is not why he, the Messiah, came. He's not come to overthrow Rome nor to make their lives as prosperous as possible. You know, friends, this is a a helpful word for us today, just to be reminded of this. If you're a Christian, you're doing this Christian thing because you think it somehow makes your life easier or the path to tranquility or prosperity, you need to think again. That is not biblical Christianity. Jesus didn't come to make your life a perpetual spa treatment, okay? That type of peace is not on his agenda. Rather, he came, he says, to bring a sword. Even in this age where the sword isn't the weapon of choice, we know the image. Jesus is using the sword as kind of a symbol of conflict. He certainly hasn't come to bring violence. That's not what he means. But rather, he's he's come. His coming brings a conflict or a division between humanity. So in the next two verses, verses 35 to 36, Jesus highlights this Division for that tips us off that he's explaining his previous statement for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And the word translated in the ESV set there in, in verse 35, that's actually the Greek word for divide. Jesus says, I've come to divide a man against his father and so on. What does the sword do? It doesn't, it doesn't kill. The sword doesn't maim. It divides. And apparently the conflict is so sharp that it even divides families. It severs sons from, daughter, from, from fathers and, and daughters from mothers and, and daughter-in-laws from mother-in-laws. In that culture, the wife upon marriage was considered part of the man's family. That's probably why Jesus references the daughter-in-law, not the, the son-in-law, because he really didn't have that same relationship with his mother-in-law. Jesus says the unity in families will rupture due to him. In fact, the rupture will be so intense that not only will this conflict kind of merely push family members to a distance from one another, actually it will turn loved ones into enemies against each other. Jesus in verse 35 and 36 really quotes almost verbatim Micah 7, 6. Micah 7, 6. In that context, the treachery prevalent in sinful Israel before her exile, I think he uses that because he's saying, hey, listen, that that treachery then is just going to be amplified even more in the Messiah's day. 
because of Jesus, because of me, family members would turn against each other even to the point of becoming enemies. Friends, how in the world could this be? When Jesus is reminding us that his coming brings an inevitable separation between those who embrace him by faith and those who don't. Those who receive by faith the gospel of the kingdom and those who don't. Those who bow the knee to to his kingship and those who harden their neck against the king. Maybe you've heard of William Travis, the colonel, the Texas colonel at the Alamo. Santa Ana's Mexican army was approaching and demanded a full surrender. It seemed like the fate of the Texans were sealed because they were so far outnumbered. As legend has it, Travis drew a line in the sand with his sword. All who want to stay and fight to this side, all who want to go home to the other side. That's where we get the American idiom to draw a line in the sand. It comes from the Alamo. Well, it's in this sense, friends, that Jesus' sword divides. It's the ultimate line in the sand. It's the ultimate test of allegiance. We understand why this why this dividing line that extends throughout all humanity is especially pronounced within the family. It's inside our families that our greatest allegiance and loyalty and love are typically placed. This was certainly the case within Jewish culture. Those family bonds were just unbreakable. So often, isn't it, in this world that family identity is wrapped around the axle of one's religion. Again, especially the case in Jewish culture, but also in many world religions. To be a part of the family is to embrace the family God and to participate in the family religious rituals and to celebrate what the family celebrates. So to bow the knee to King Jesus and to follow him is to reject man-made religion and idolatry. It entails loving Jesus supremely and following him alone. And so... Often is the case, isn't it? When a family member decides to follow Jesus, the other family members are deeply offended. In in their sin and in the darkness of their hearts, they become angry and resentful. They feel betrayed. They, They simply can't fathom in their heart a family member not being loyal to the family. And it's often not just a feeling, is it? It's it's coupled with their pride and their rebellion against the Lord, their desire for autonomy that rejects Jesus' kingship in their lives. As Paul would say later, a crucified Messiah is scandalous to the Jews, and it is foolishness to the Gentiles, to the point that they reject even their own blood family. The sword divides. Friends, let's be clear. Jesus did indeed come to bring a type of peace didn't he? He came to reconcile us to the Father, to our Creator. Colossians says that Jesus made peace through the blood of His cross. Hallelujah. He satisfied the just wrath of God against our sin if we trust Him. But the type of peace that Jesus brings is not conflict-free peace. When God brings us into peace with himself, sometimes the exact opposite happens in our earthly relationships. Peace with God, the sword with men. You know, none of us who are Christians want this type of conflict, do we? We don't want the cold shoulder. 
We don't want the friction or the awkwardness or the mockery at family gatherings. This isn't a virtue to be pursued, right? Nor does Jesus mean that this type of conflict is absolutely universal of every believer. But what he describes here is the, the painful experience of many. And I know it is for some of you. You know well the reality of what Jesus describes. And certainly a large percentage of our brothers and sisters around the world and more hostile places to Christianity know this very reality. Perhaps you remember Jerry's testimony a few weeks ago in the Stories of Grace here in our Sunday school class where he told of how he and Helene uh, became Christians out of, out of Judaism. They're obviously Jewish. And Jerry, Jerry testified that when he, he and Helene trusted in Jesus, certain family members of theirs didn't speak to them for five years, I think. That's right. Other family tried to turn their children against them. They were called names. Friends, this is the sword. This is the sword that Jesus speaks of. And yet, praise God, through their witness, they've also seen certain family members come to Jesus. So the sword that Jesus brings also has a witness in this world, doesn't it? Beloved, we must recognize that to become a citizen of heaven is to be a sojourner on the earth. This world is not our home. In a real sense, even our family is not our primary home. We belong to even an even greater family, and we long for an even greater home. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus explains what a disciple's DNA should be. Since Jesus and his gospel bring about such division in the world, then what must be true of us as his followers? Well, he must hold the supreme place of affection and devotion in our hearts. We must love him above all. In verse 37, Jesus says that we must love him more than family. And then in verses 38 and 39, Jesus teaches us that we must love him more than we love ourselves. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. As the sword divides families, well, there's really two different responses to Jesus, right? And it becomes very obvious and it becomes massively important to be clear about where our primary allegiance lies. Friends, I asked this at the beginning. Who in the world deserves a greater love than you give to your family members? Who deserves more love than you give to your dad or your mom or your siblings or your spouse? or your kids? Well, from a Christian perspective, we would say, well, God alone deserves that type of love. We began the service today with the words of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's not that just that God deserves our, our love as our creator and redeemer. It's that he deserves our highest love. We're to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our heart. It's an all-encompassing love. Friends, you're not to hold any of yourself back to the Lord. You ought to love him, friends, with your affections. You ought to love the Lord with your will. You ought to love him with your intellect and the gifts that he's given you. You want to love him with your body 
in your energy, in your time, in your habits. He's the only being in the universe who has the rightful claim on that type of devotion. In fact, so worthy is God of this type of response to him that, that really to demote him and to promote someone or something else into his place, into that kind of central place in our hearts, isn't just wrongheaded, right? It's just not just a mistake. It's idolatry. It's to worship falsely. And so as good of a gift as family is to us, when we love family more than God, we are worshiping family more than God. So when Jesus comes along and he demands a devotion that only God deserves, we should rightly do a double take. Like, well, what? Because from a human standpoint, to demand this type of allegiance is crazy. We've read of these type of cult leaders, right? We've seen Waco on Netflix. Like we, we know how this works. For a human to demand this is lunacy unless that human is God. That's why this statement by Jesus is really implicitly a massive Christological claim, isn't it? If only God is worthy to be loved supremely and Jesus demands that same type of love, then either he is a lunatic or he is the Lord, as C.S. Lewis put it. He's either a maniac or he's the Messiah. As we've studied Matthew's gospel together, we've, we've seen Jesus on display repeatedly through Matthew's writing. We've seen his incomparable works and his authoritative words. Matthew labors, doesn't he, all throughout the gospel just to, to kind of demonstrate forcefully that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's saving promises in the Old Testament. By his mere word, lepers were cleansed. The lame walked. The storm was stilled. The demons fled. His words and his works testify not, that just, not just that he's the Messiah King prophesied from of old, but that he is God incarnate. That's why when he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It's not craziness. It's reality. It's the only worthy response to such a king and such a God. If you love your family more than you love Jesus, Jesus says you're not worthy to be his follower. To do that would make them, the family, the functional God, not him. That's why he talks about being worthy of him. Not that we deserve him. He's talking about a response that's fitting, that's suitable, that's worthy. Friends, this is what makes Christianity Christianity, frankly. We don't just believe in one God like Judaism or the distorted one God of Islam. We believe that this, that this one God exists eternally in three persons and that in Christ the man, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That Jesus as the preeminent son, the second person of the Trinity, deserves our love and worship as God. Jesus says to follow him, you're not to just to believe the right things about him, you must love him above all. Did you notice that? He puts it and frames it in terms of not what we know necessarily or what we believe, but what we love. 
You know, there's no question Christianity is a set of truth claims to be believed. No doubt. The gospel must be embraced by faith. Sound doctrine is essential. Good theology matters. We want more of it here at RGC, not less. But doctrine and theology is not the end game, is it? It's simply a way of kind of organizing truth so that we might more fully love Jesus. Friends, theology is for doxology. Truth is for love. So, let me ask you, does a deep and abiding love for Jesus mark your life? Be honest. Does it mark your life? Do you love to read about Jesus? Do you love to think about Jesus? Do you love to talk about him and sing about him and tell others about him? Does he have your heart? And friend, do you love Jesus more than you love your family? Say, John, I don't know. I don't know if I do or not. Well, how do I know? Well, I think at the most fundamental level, to start it all off, are you willing to step out and publicly identify yourself with Jesus no matter what your family thinks? This is why Jesus prescribes baptism right off the bat for the Christian life. It tests whether a person's profession of faith is real enough to go public. So friend, let me say something in the kind of the kindest way I know how with an edge on it. If you're not willing to be baptized and so align yourself with Jesus because of relationships in your life, Jesus says you're not worthy to be his disciple. It's not that baptism saves us from sin but it does seal in an outward way what God has done inwardly in our hearts. And so if you're just kind of stubbornly unwilling to be baptized because of that type of reason, it's hard to say with confidence that you're Christ. But beyond this, the initial step of, of public identification, Jesus' words ought to remind us that we only love our family well if we love him above all. Friend, let me repeat that. You will only love your family well and best if you love Jesus above all. Parents, maybe a way to apply this sermon might be for you as parents, as a couple, to sit down and discuss whether it's abundantly clear by the way that you parent your kids that you love Jesus above all. Discuss it today at lunch or maybe when your kids are down for a nap. Is it obvious to them by your spiritual interest, by your conversation topics, by your passion for what you want for them and what you push them to pursue or not pursue and the degree to which they do it and the orientation of their heart? By all of that, is it abundantly clear that you love Jesus even more than you love them? And that your highest goal for them is that they would love Jesus above all. Let me be clear, unless you misunderstand. Jesus is not asking you to love your family members less. He's not demanding that your love for your kids diminish or your love for your parents wane or your love for your siblings falter. Jesus is not demanding a shrinking love for family, but a growing love for him. Our family love should be filtered by our Jesus love. 
So friends, remember that. Take it away today. You will only love your family well if you love Jesus above all. In verses 38 and 39, Jesus says that not only should we love him more than we love our family, we should love him more than we love ourselves. We ought to regard him more highly than we do our own lives. And really this makes sense, doesn't it, in the flow of the passage, since our fear of losing family's approval is often just a veneer for really our protecting ourselves, often. It's not just that we fear losing a relationship, we fear what that would mean for us. And so Jesus continues in verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus doesn't mean that we will have simply just burdens to bear, like you know, the Chiefs are a mediocre football team this year. As a Chiefs fan, that's just my cross to, to bear, isn't it? No, that's not what it means. Now, what would have come to his disciples' minds was the Roman instrument of death. I fear that in this day and age, we often have domesticated the cross by using it as a decoration or by hanging it around our necks. Not that I'm saying that's sinful but we miss what it is, what it was. Friends, crucifixion was the Romans' go-to execution method for slaves and political rebels. It was as shameful as it was agonizing. Not only was the crucified fastened naked to the cross, but beforehand, the condemned man was made to carry the heavy cross beam in a public procession to the location of death. All the while, the crowds would hurl jeers and mockery toward him. That's what Jesus wants us to envision when he says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a one-way ticket to the place of execution. To take up our cross and follow Jesus doesn't mean that each one of us will die for Christ, but it does mean that each one of us should be willing to die to every claim that we have on our own lives. We realize that our lives are not our own. They're not ours to keep. We belong to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love his first name. Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarized Jesus' words in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When, a, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Beloved, this is the way. We don't follow Jesus so that we can get the Jesus stamp of approval on the way that we want to live. Rather, we follow Jesus and we abandon ourselves to him. We renounce our right to rule ourselves and we follow the king. You know, perhaps for some of you, this, this sounds a little too works-ish, right? A little too much like salvation by works. That we have a relationship by God, by, by the degree of our love and by taking up our cross and self-denial. Well, friends, let me be clear. Jesus is not prescribing here some sort of, you know, monastic lifestyle or asceticism in order to receive eternal life. He's not re requiring a list of do's and don'ts to be a Christian. Rather, what Jesus is talking about here is the nature of saving faith that we exercise by grace. The type of faith that we exercise to be saved is not just intellectual belief. It's not just that we know a set of facts, but that we trust Jesus with our whole lives. It's not merely a faith that believes Jesus, but a faith that worships him. It's to find who Jesus is and what he did and what he's still doing so compellingly beautiful that to you, friend, he becomes the pearl of great price. 
He becomes that treasure that's, that's hidden in the field that you'll give everything to find. It's faith that loves Jesus more than anything. Thus far, Jesus said, you need to love me more than your closest relationships, so much so that your love for me really looks like death. And at face value, this seems like a fool's errand. But look at what he says in verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All along, whether we've realized it or not, we've been dealing with this hidden, grace-filled paradox under the surface. Those who in this life seek to live for themselves and preserve their relationships at the expense of Christ will find in the end that they have not found their life. They've lost it eternally. They forfeited it. And those who in this life, for the sake of Christ, give themselves away to him, well, they will have found their lives eternally. The missionary Jim Elliott was right. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, think about this, how it just cuts against the grain of our culture. It cuts against the grain of what you hear, what you see on a regular basis. Our world says that, that the supreme virtue, that the way to life, to real life, is to find yourself and to express yourself. That's where real life is found. Jesus says real life is found when you lose yourself. For his sake. The world says, fulfill your desires, fulfill your cravings, fulfill what you conceive yourself to be. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Beloved, this paradox only makes sense if Jesus is the giver and the source of life. It's the only way the paradox makes sense. Otherwise, it would be cruel what he says here. It would be deranged if he isn't the source and giver of life. <laughs> but praise God, he is. He's where fullness of joy is located both now and, et and eternally. Just as much as Jesus says he came to bring a sword, he also says, I came that they may have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Friend, if you're not a Christian, let me note something for you if it's not obvious already. There's no bait and switch in Christianity. Praise God. Okay, Jesus isn't luring you in with ice cream only to feed you sand, you know, once you sign on the dotted line. There's no guarantee that your life will be easy if you follow Jesus. But Jesus does promise that your life will be abundant. He will give you real, lasting joy, both now and forever. Because he's going to actually restore you to the purpose for which God has created you in the beginning. He created all of us in the beginning to worship him and to enjoy him forever. Or as John Piper says, to worship him by enjoying him forever. And you know what? All that Jesus demands of us, he lived for us. All that Jesus requires, he embodied it. We read this morning in John 7 of the unbelief of his brothers. 
After Jesus' resurrection, we know that at least one of his brothers believed, James. We've got his, his epistle in the New Testament as a record of that. But during his life, Jesus' family largely rejected him. In Mark 3, 21, his family accused him of being out of his mind. So praise God, as we face similar rejection, we come to a merciful high priest. Who knows what it's like to be maligned by his family? And of course, Jesus knows what it is to bear his cross. He bore his own cross for us. He died that most agonizing and humiliating and shameful death. He renounced his life so that we might find true life in him. He willingly sacrificed himself in our place so that we might not ever incur the penalty that our sin had earned. And then he rose from the dead on the third day to defeat death so that you and I, if we trust him, if we follow him, if we give ourselves to him, might share in his eternal life and joy. Friend, this is why you can be confident that it's worth it to renounce your selfish pursuits and follow Jesus. Because Jesus the resurrected king is leading us in the path of life. Praise God. This last section of Matthew 10 reminds us that if we love Jesus supremely, we will love his people too. Second point, love Jesus' people too. That's really the gist of the second section. The remarkable part of it is that Jesus says that, that our love for his people reflects directly upon our love for him. How we treat Jesus will be mirrored in our treatment of, of his people, of, of his followers. Jesus says in verse 40, whoever receives you, he's talking to his disciples here, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus sent out his disciples on their mission as his ambassadors, as his representatives. And their living, remember, would really depend upon the hospitality of others who received them. But notice the connection. Since the disciples represent Jesus, to receive them is to receive him. But that's not all. Not only do the disciples represent Jesus, but Jesus, the son, represents the father, the one who had sent him into the world. See the progression to welcome the messengers is to welcome Jesus is to welcome the Father. And Jesus says there is a direct correlation, isn't there, between our treatment of Jesus' people and our relationship to God. Your love for the Father and the Son will work itself out in love for His people. That's how it works. In verses 41 and 42, Jesus expands from the twelve to all believers, okay? So he moves from the apostles in verse 40. In verse 41, he mentions these prophets and righteous men. And then in verse 42, the little ones, the least in the kingdom of heaven. The little ones are really all who follow Jesus. Well, you know, the prophets and righteous ones were the Old Testament people of God who preached God's word and who lived out God's word, right? Prophets preach, righteous ones live. The prophets proclaimed the word. The righteous ones lived according to the word. There may be another designation, a little more specific than that, but honestly, I think that's about as good as we can do right now. I don't think Jesus has given us a, a kind of a New Testament category for prophets so much as he's using these already familiar categories to summarize the people that Jesus sends out into the world. 
he sends those who proclaim and those who live his word. We see this in the local church, don't we? We do. God gives pastors and teachers, elders to preach the word. And then the church then responds joyfully to the word together, the righteous ones. Likewise, he gives evangelists and missionaries that go out for the sake of the name. And the book of 3 John is clear how we ought to treat those type of folk. All of these are to be treated with kindness and with hospitality, knowing that a reward awaits. And then in verse 42, Jesus uses the term little ones to describe all disciples, all followers of him. He's not talking about actual kids, okay? He's using children really as a metaphor to describe us all. He identifies his disciples and the prophets and the righteous ones and all of us who follow him as little ones. We are small, certainly compared to Jesus, and we are certainly small and insignificant in the eyes of the world. We may come in the name of the king, but friends, we do so without fanfare, without pomp, and without status. We proclaim his message as the lowly and the insignificant. Notice the act of kindness that Jesus describes in verse 42. A cup of cold water. You know, we may not have immediately picked up on what Jesus meant by the sword or, you know, by bearing the cross, but a cup of cold water, we get that. We live in Phoenix. <laughs> we, we know what this means. We know that a cup of cold water goes a long, long way on a hot day. But really, is, it, is giving a cup of cold water a, a big deal? No, it's really not that big of a deal. It's not... It's a really kind of a, a small kindness, isn't it? And it's a small kindness not given to a great person, but a small kindness to a small person, to a little one. And yet even that doubly small kindness, Jesus says, is significant. Why? Because it's given to those who represent the king. The smallest act of kindness to God's people is infused with gigantic significance. So friends, one of the primary marks, one of the primary ways that we kind of flesh out, put you know, muscle on the bones of our love for Jesus is how we treat his people. Listen to 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Brother, talking about brother in Christ. Paul wrote in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to whom? To those who are of the household of faith. Friends, let's make it a prayer and a goal that Redeeming Grace Church is going to be marked by a culture of hospitality and sacrificial love. I praise God for what I've seen of that already and what I know to be true. But friends, let's go beyond, above and beyond, to demonstrate tangibly the love of Christ to His people. As we have opportunity, that really needs to be the aim of toward people who proclaim God's Word to us, as we see here in the text. So on behalf of my family, thank you for receiving us so well. 
But as you know, guest preachers cycle through, as we have opportunity to, to support missionaries and church planners, you know what we should try to do? We should make it our aim to, to lavish them with hospitality and kindness. Why? Because they've gone out for the sake of the name. That's why. It deserves honor. But then also our life in the body. We should be known as a church of love and hospitality one for another. As Rosaria Butterfield said so well, the gospel comes with a house key. The gospel is connected to hospitality. So often that we, we think that delivering a meal in response to a meal train email or you know, signing up to bring something to the church potluck or responding to a ministry volunteer email request, it just seems so insignificant. But Jesus says that those who demonstrate a Christ-centered kindness to Christ's little ones will not lose their reward. In other words, they're going to receive a full participation in the kingdom of God. It really mirrors what Jesus said earlier in his first block of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So friends, following Jesus as a Christian hinges on who or whom you love. You know, Jesus' words throughout this section are hard, but in many ways profoundly simple. We must love Jesus supremely, and we must love his people too. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for what we have learned from you in, in the Bible, in your words today. And Lord, even as we move now to the Lord's Supper, we thank you that we can kind of enact what we've learned, that we can flesh out even by receiving the Lord's Supper, our love for Jesus, our love for you, the one who died and rose again in our place. And that we also, by taking the meal together, symbolize our love and our reception and our welcoming of one another, of all those who have done the same. So Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your great love for us. Help us to love you more. Oh, Lord, help us not to, to drift throughout this Christian life and thinking that it's okay to kind of remain cold-hearted and just put it on cruise control. Oh, Lord, but help us at the deepest level of who we are to love you, to be devoted to you, to honor you with everything that we have. And Father, we know we're not going to do that perfectly. <laughs> we, we, we trip up in so many ways. We find ourselves giving allegiance to things that we ought not, that fundamental and primary allegiance of our hearts. But Father, that's what the cross is for. It's what the empty tomb is for. It's so that we might repent quickly and come back to you. And so even as we pray the prayer of confession in a little while, and as we take the supper, remind us of your grace toward a repentant people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.